1: Welcome to the New Books Network. New Books in Southeast Asian Studies is sponsored by the ANU Southeast Asia Institute, the Griffith Asia Institute, the New York Southeast Asia Network, the Nordic Institute of Asian Studies and the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre.
0: Welcome to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Michelle Ford, the Director of the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney and co-host of the channel. Today I'm talking to Tanya Giacomo. Tanya is Associate Professor in the School of Culture, History and Language at the Australian National University and the author of Susceptibility in Development, Micropolitics of Local Development in India and Indonesia, published by Oxford University Press in 2020. Susceptibility in Development hones in on the exercise of power in development using the lens of affect and emotion, asking us to consider in detail the capacity of individuals to engender feelings in local development actors. Empirically, the book draws on the experience of volunteers in the Indonesian city of Medan and women municipal councillors in the city of Derudan in India. Welcome, Tanya. Thank you very much, Michelle. Tanya, the opening paragraphs of your book are incredibly hard-hitting. Can you tell us what they say and why you wanted to start with this particular anecdote?
1: So I opened the book with the final time that I met with one of the key participants in my research project, um, Pug Johnny, one of the people who I'd been very close to throughout the research process. And he was talking to me about my research project and basically how I had fundamentally let him down. I wanted to start with this particular anecdote because it was so emotionally draining for me. And in this final scene where we're sitting in his his house uh, and he's basically telling me that, you know, he hasn't benefited from the research that I have done, that um, the only person to have benefited was me and that he was fundamentally disappointed with the research relationship. Now, I started with this particular anecdote, I guess, because part of what I am looking at in the book are moments like this, moments when people's fundamental understanding of who they are is threatened or is kind of made untenable within the particular moment. So I had this idea of myself as being this very ethical researcher, a researcher who is at pains to explain exactly what I'm doing, to try to make sure that nobody feels compelled to participate in my research projects, and that I'm there for them, that I I become friends with them, that I become close to them throughout the period of time that I know them. And I had known Park Johnny, I think, for about um, two years at this particular point. And so what he Well, I wouldn't, I don't want to say accusations, but what his own ideas about what our relationship had been fundamentally challenged that whole idea about who I was. And I was very susceptible to these kind of claims that he was making. They hit me very hard at that particular moment. But what I think is more interesting than the way that he could have potentially threatened this idea of who I was as a researcher is the way that I recovered very quickly from it. So, you know, I listened to him. At the same time, I'm kind of circulating in my head, well, you know, we went through the whole ethics process, we had actually had a number of conversations with him about, you know, what we could expect from this particular relationship, and I, I kind of used this to say, you know, have this internal dialogue that no, Tanya, you're okay, you're not a, a very bad person, you're not a bad researcher. This is just a, a misunderstanding on his part. And then, you know, I walked away, and I was talking to my, you know, research assistants, you know, really research co-researchers, um, Ida Harahap and Buyumas. And, you know, we we kind of talked about how Pug Johnny had become a little bit difficult to deal with, um, that it was very different to the, the kind of responses we had had with people who had taken a large role within this research project. And so we all kind of made each other feel better about ourselves. So what this kind of suggested to me is that, you know, I'm really susceptible to having these challenges to who I am but that does not necessarily mean that I'm, i am responsive to these threats it doesn't mean that i'm i'm vulnerable to thinking about or rechanging who i am in relation to puck johnny or or what our relationship means And this is fundamental to the the core aspect of the book, which is trying to understand how these moments of susceptibility, how these recoveries from these moments allow us to sustain the same relationships that we have and the same power inequalities that are contained within those relationships.
0: So Tanya, at the same time, you suggest that affect operates as a disruptive form of power. So can you talk us through how that happens and how that relates to that anecdote you've just told us?
1: So how that could happen and how I have seen it happen, well, first of all, a lot of the time we have these kind of different ways that we are susceptible to some people and not susceptible to others. So this is our kind of differential susceptibility to be affected by others. And in many ways, this reinforces these power inequalities. But we can never really contain affect. Affect will always exceed the patterning that privileges certain people and that sustains these these hierarchies, there are also affects that can escape. There are always emotional responses that we can have, which are actually counter to the way that power operates conventionally or or how hierarchies are, are structured. I guess a different way to, to think about how it can be a disruptive force is to think about what would have happened if I had potentially been more open to responding to Pak Joni or what would have happened if he had been able to be more forceful or if the force of his words was such that I was able to, to rethink that relationship and rethink it in ways that actually disrupted the unequal hierarchies between us.
0: The book is divided into three parts, each of which maps onto a different aspect of power. What are those three aspects of power and what are the key insights you offer into each?
1: So the first aspect of power that I examine are really power through processes of self-making. And this picks up on work that I've done earlier in terms of how processes of selfhood or the ways that we are constantly engaged in projects of self-making are fundamental to how power operates. Now, one of the things that is somewhat overlooked in the literature is the importance to have opportunities to be affected in ways that reaffirm our understanding of self. So what do I mean by this? So when you have a look at volunteers, for example, um, volunteers who are engaged in this community development program, many of them, they put a lot of emphasis on these activities in terms of who they think they are as a person. So do they think of themselves as a good person, being useful to the community? Do they think of themselves as being somebody who is respected within the community? Now, within these self-making projects, they're highly dependent on other people or the impressions that they get through their activities to reaffirm them. So, for example, if you think that you are somebody who does good in the community, then having encounters also reaffirms your sense of self. So if you're a community volunteer, then you might be engaged in activities, for example, of, of organising micro-enterprises or perhaps you're, you're in a, an environment where you're giving um, uniforms to a recipient of benefits. And within that interaction, there are emotions that are engendered. So you feel satisfaction or you, you feel that you're doing a good job or the person who you're giving the uniform to exhibits gratefulness and in that, in that you can feel that you are being useful to the community. Now this is the capacity to be affected and this is a fundamental condition for all of us. So what I'm getting at in the first section is the centrality of those opportunities to be affected in a particular way for the self-making projects of these local development agents. But if we take this same scenario where we have somebody who is gaining great satisfaction from their community work, their sense of who they are or who they want to become is being reaffirmed through these actions, there is always the possibility that they will be affected otherwise. And here I'm referring to the susceptibility to be affected. Now I should underline that theoretically there is no distinction between the capacity to be affected and the susceptibility to be affected. But I pass a kind of analytical distinction so that we can recognise those moments when people are affected in ways that challenge the sense of who they are or, or who they desire to be. So, for example, if we were to take that same kind of scenario where the volunteer is giving a uniform to a beneficiary and instead of saying, well, you know, thank you very much, this is very welcome, they say, well, you know, this is fantastic, but what are you getting out of this? Um, Or or this uniform is, is such a small outcome out of the project, where is all of the money going? And This is not an inevitability, but it is a possibility that this will disrupt the sense of self or disrupt the idea that the volunteer is doing good. Now, in the first section, when I'm talking about this capacity to be affected and this susceptibility to be affected in ways that either reaffirm or disrupt this idea of who we are or who we desire to be, I also want to underline that it can be particularly fraught for people whose idea of who they are is precarious to begin with, or whose positioning within as a development actor is something that they're not entirely comfortable with, you know, either because they have a poor education, or because they don't have a a lot of socio-economic capital. And so maybe they feel that they, I, I mean, this is a very academic term, but maybe they feel like they are imposters. So they're highly susceptible to claims that they are actually not doing good, that they're doing bad. So what this also underlines is that the person who is receiving those goods or the person who is the recipient of aid or development has a capacity to affect the volunteer. Um, This is not a capacity that is a quality of their body, but this capacity is kind of engendered in the relationship between them. So, this sort of underlines the fact that our ideas about development hierarchies as being very top down, um, that local development agents have power over resources, material, and they have access to knowledge, and therefore they're in an unequal relationship with the recipients of development. Actually, when you look at their everyday experiences, the recipients of development, the everyday citizens, the targets of development have this. I don't want to call it a power, but they have this capacity to affect. They can shape those development encounters in ways that have not really been accounted for within development. So that's the first part of the book that relates to capacity and to be affected and susceptibility to be affected.
0: So you've nicely encapsulated the messages in the first part of the book.
1: What happens in part two and three? So in part two, I turn my attention to the collective conditions which determine who can affect who and people's differential susceptibility to be affected. So when we think about how we have these, these broader ideas, so for example, when we're thinking about the volunteers, there's these broader ideas about what development means. There are particular discourses, there are particular common sense, which frame our relationships with others. And in framing this relationship, we're also framing the differential capacity to be affected and also one's susceptibility to be affected as well. Now, this plays out in the the third part of the book, which is looking more so at encounters. So what actually happens when two people meet each other within these collective conditions? How do these border discourses, be it of democracy, of dirty politics, of everybody getting a share, how does this actually shape what happens within these encounters, And how does people's, you know, the way that they respond in relation to other people, how does this shape broader things within the development scenario? So, for example, you know, who does or does not get resources is on account somewhat of their susceptibility to be affected.
0: Let's turn to the empirical focus of the book. You deal with a field site in India and one in Indonesia. It's quite uncommon to compare countries in South and Southeast Asia and we'll return to the value of that comparison later.
1: But for now, can you paint a picture of your Indonesian field site? So Medan is quite a large city. I believe at the time of fieldwork that it was the fourth largest city in Indonesia, certainly the largest city outside of Java. And so it's very bustling. There's a quite a density of population and a lot of traffic, and there's a lot of things happening. Medan is, is also a highly diverse city, which makes it a really exciting place to work. So it has a large Malay population, a large Javanese population, um, but there also is a large Batak population as well, and these are comprised of different ethnic groups also, so Batak Mandaling, Batak Toba, who are Christian. And then we have large Chinese populations and also a small but still a significant Tamil population. So some of the biggest um, or the most striking architectural features within the Maidan are large Tamil temples, even though they comprise a very small proportion of the population.
0: In chapter three, you examine how Indonesian volunteers working in Medan are affectively mobilised. We talked briefly about the interplay between their volunteer activities and theories of personhood before, but can you give us one example that really encapsulates
1: this? Yeah, sure. So, One of the things that I wanted to do in the book is to not only depend on the kind of Western theoretical conceptual frames that I had for personhood, but to be attentive to the ways that the people that I was talking to talked about their own self-making projects. So self-making projects is something that Sherry Ortner talks about and that I use a lot. It refers to the ways that we are always drawing upon the, the kind of resources that we have in our environment, the opportunities that we have in terms of these ongoing ideas about who we are and who we want to become. Now, thinking specifically about the volunteers, they described this in a very particular way to me. For them, their idea of personhood or who they were at their essence, at their core, at their nature, was attached to their what they describe as their jiva or jiwa. Which can be translated into soul, but in in this context really captures the the nature of the person. So, for example, uh, there was one volunteer who would speak about this quite distinctly. Um, Ibu Chitra, she would talk about how you know she has this uh, Bijiwa social, so she has this social soul. This is her true nature. This is who she is. Now, for someone like Ibu Chitra. For her, what was really fantastic about the opportunity to become a volunteer within this development program was that she could realise this idea about who she was. She could satisfy her jiwa, her, her soul, or her, her true nature by becoming a volunteer. Now for her and for many like her, they always felt that they had this kind of social disposition, if you like, or this social nature, but they lacked the opportunity to realise this because of their economic circumstances or because they just hadn't had the opportunity to engage in the the social activities that they desired. Now, they also talked about this in very effective terms as well. And when they were talking about this, they would refer to their hearty, which literally translates into liver. I translate it into heart because it it captures for me in the English sense, the emotional center of a person or, or what kind of moves a person. So people would talk about how, or volunteers would talk about how through their activity, their hati or or their heart would feel satisfied. Through these kind of acts that they were doing and through the satisfaction they were feeling through them, they were reaffirming the idea that they were engaged in activities that was aligned to their jiwa or to their soul or to their true nature. And so here the affective was very important for their sense of who they were, to to really reaffirm who they were, um, that they were engaged in activity that was true to themselves. It also made the activity a lot lighter. So the fact that they were engaged in social activity, which could be really difficult, you know, it often entailed long days, it often entailed um, meetings long into the night, but they never felt that this was a burden or, or they didn't feel that this was something ha- that hung heavy on them because they were energised by their, their hearty. they were energised by the, the satisfaction that they were getting from their work.
0: Chapter 5 is the next chapter that looks in Indonesia and in it you examine what you describe as collective affects and their impact on the interpretation of development encounters between these volunteers and the targets of the community development program you studied. What is a collective affect and what impact do collective affects have?
1: So collective affects are the kind of everyday that we dwell in, the way that when we're moving through our social worlds we are impressed upon in, in a myriad of ways. Now, when I'm talking about collective affect, I'm really trying to draw a connection between the affective circulations that we have that circulate through bodies, but also that are tied deeply to the discursive or the symbolic. So I talk about two different kinds of collective affect, and both of which are are somewhat important I think one of the things that is important to remember when we're looking at how affect circulates and how it shapes the development encounter is to think about what's happening in the background or what are the terms of the relationship between the two people um, within an encounter. So in every encounter, it's not just purely the encounter between two bodies. There's a whole history behind that encounter. That depends not on their personal histories, but on the broader structures of feeling within their communities, the broader discourses, and how they make people feel within that particular encounter. So if we go back to the example of the volunteer giving a uniform to the recipient, and and she questions, you know, how much money are you getting for this? Why am I only getting a uniform? These are not questions that have come out of nowhere. She feels suspicious about what's happening here. She feels highly skeptical of this particular uh, scene of development. She's questioning the volunteer's uh, motivations to be doing this particular work because of these broader circulating discourses. Now, in in chapter five, I talk about this broader discourse as a, a kind of a moral atmosphere, and it's a moral atmosphere of buggy buggy, which is everybody getting a share. So this is the sense that circulates within the development arena within uh, Maidan that. Everybody is getting a share out of development. Development is not so much there to ensure that people have access to welfare or to improve wellbeing. It's to distribute resources. And so when when the volunteers come into encounters with the recipients of those benefits, then they kind of engender suspicion. Their body is sticky with suspicion, sticky with this, this kind of idea that they're actually not in it for their own personal motivations, which I've already talked about, but they're there because they want to get a share of development resources. And so this this kind of penetrates that particular encounter. It makes uh, the volunteer susceptible to affect the recipient, to make them suspicious or to make them cynical. It also means that when the recipient says to the volunteer, you know, what are you getting out of that? Because of this atmosphere of buggy-buggy that's kind of circulating around them, this accusation has a particular force because of its almost plausibility or because the volunteer knows that this is is something that is highly plausible within the development sector more generally. So in this way, collective affect are those things that kind of circulate and that shape those relationships or the emotions that are engendered within those interactions.
0: Chapter 7 then examines volunteers' responses to the disruptive exercise of affective power by these aid recipients. How did the volunteers respond to all these stickiness and this suspicion? And how did these interactions influence the course of the project?
1: It's very similar to the ways that I described my own reaction uh, when I was confronted in an encounter which had kind of threatened my sense of self. So I have observed many encounters where a volunteer in a community development program were confronted with these questions or these accusations, or told that you know the work that they had done did not actually do good, that it did a great deal of harm. Now one of the responses to this and probably the most common response was to try to divert attention from the force or try to dispel that force or try to make the accusation less affecting. So for example, I'll take you on one encounter and this was with Ibu Hanum, who was a long-term volunteer and was one of these women who got a great deal of satisfaction from her work. And in fact, it was really central to who she thought she was to be this volunteer one day we were walking with Ibu Hanum, and I loved Ibu Hanum, and she was somebody who, at this particular point in time, we had known for quite a long, a long time, and we knew how important doing good development work was for her and for her desire to be to become a more ethical person, actually, a more um, pious person. So she's showing us this drain that she has built with the development organisation, um, showing us how wonderful the effects have been, telling us that, you know, in the past this street used to flood, now there's no flooding. All of the people came out and gave their labour for this particular building of this drain. Through the retelling of this and through the physical infrastructure, she's becoming enlivened. She's she's feeling highly satisfied at this moment and we're very impressed by the work that she has done. But then we turn a corner and it's a corner that is the boundary between the houses and this large field. And there's a man who's loading wood onto a cart and he sees Ibu Hanum and he yells at her. He points and he yells and he says, you know, because of this woman, all of our houses are flooding. And by houses, he's referring here to the kind of shacks that have been built along the edge of the field. And immediately you can see how Ibu Hanum is is deeply affected by this. You know, she she kind of slumps, she turns away and we're feeling highly protective of her because this is somebody that we're very affectionate um, with and so we kind of shield her and we try to distract her from what is happening. And we walk away and she, you know, says that this is just some man, He's he just rents here, he's a migrant, um, he always has some complaint. This is not something to be concerned about. So what we can see here is that there is uh, what I describe as an effective injury. So there is an encounter which threatens her sense of who she is or, or threatens the very idea that she is doing good. Now in the development studies literature or even in the literature in the anthropology of ethics, these are moments of self-reflection when we, we kind of respond to to the encounter in ways where we reflect on our own practices. We reflect on who we are. And this is a process of transformation or process of change. But actually what happens more frequently from what I observe is that rather we distract ourselves or we we try to lessen the force of that particular accusation or we tell narratives that counter the force of the accusation. So in that particular moment, of course, Ibn Hanan kind of dismisses his concern. Uh, He's not somebody to worry about because he's not actually, you know, a resident here. He's just a migrant. And then later, she also, you know, returns back to this scene and she tells us another narrative about walking down that same street and being greeted by people who tell her how wonderful the drain has been and what a difference it has made. So, one of the most important elements of this is that, you know, we talk about reflexivity within development and we talk about how um, we are responsive to others in ways that help us to improve development practice. But Actually, there are what Anke Chitwe describes as limits to reflexivity. So often what we're not doing is being responsive or we are not learning. We're just trying to make ourselves feel better. We're making it so that we can continue on being this person who we think we are in the face of these effective injuries.
0: Thanks for that, Tanya. I feel like we've got a really good sense of the Indonesian story you're telling in the book now. So I'd like to step back and discuss a little more some of the theoretical and methodological concerns of the book. And I wanted to start by asking you, why do you think emotion has been so neglected in the field of development studies?
1: It's a good question. And I should also, you know, acknowledge the people who have come before me and have written about emotions and affect in development. People like Farhana Sulkana, Sarah Wright at University of Newcastle. Uh, These are all people who have talked about emotions. So it's not that it hasn't been present within development studies, but where I think or where I saw, a you know, an opportunity to contribute was to bring affect theory and theories of emotion directly into conversation with what it means for power. So development studies, I see, has been strongly wedded to looking at power in two different respects. So looking at political economy, material resources, um, and also drawing upon Foucault and, you know, looking at processes of subjectification and governmentality and biopolitics. And this has been highly productive. Oh, and I should also say discursive regimes has been, you know, also central in development studies. Highly productive theories of power that I have also drawn upon and that I think help to explain a lot within development. But your question actually asked me to reflect on why I thought that emotion hasn't been present within our understanding of power within development studies. And I think one of the reasons is because the previous ways of understanding power through material resources or through these lens of governmentality or discursive regimes has been seen from the perspective of people who hold a privileged position within development hierarchies or within broader development configurations. So one of the reasons why I think power hasn't been looked at in terms of the intimacy, in terms of the the way that it moves through the body, is that we have been inattentive to actors for whom it affects the most. And here I think I get to the importance of looking at local development actors rather than expat development practitioners or even um, national development actors who are still quite high up in development hierarchies. And so they are able to withstand some of the effective assaults that come through being involved in development practice.
0: Well, for a start, they were less exposed to them, I guess, too. They come for those kind of stage visits where everything's set out. They don't have those everyday encounters of the kind you described with Ibu Hanum before. Um, I think I want to talk a bit more about susceptibility and vulnerability. In the book, you distinguish between susceptibility as a non-agential state and vulnerability as an agential state, which requires us to make a decision to open ourselves up emotionally. What role does or should vulnerability have in development practice?
1: Yeah, this is a point that I pick up on quite a recent article actually in Third World Quarterly where I turn my lens from looking at local development agents to looking at elite development agents. And I kind of put the onus on um, more elite development agents to adopt a vulnerability as an ethical practice. Now, what I mean by that is that we need to be attentive to how we can be resilient to being affected in ways that challenge our kind of sense of who we are.
0: So this really relates very closely to my next question. We've already discussed how you parse your discussion of susceptibility to affect in relation to your positionality as an international researcher and by extension the positionality of national aid actors. But can you talk a bit more about how class differentials between local development actors and aid recipients play into affective interactions?
1: Yeah, very, very important question. And there's really two aspects to my answer here. The first is that because they are local development agents, often the only thing that differentiates them from the recipients of development or the everyday citizens that they interact with is the fact that they are a development agent. So they are a doer of development rather than a recipient or a target of development. That means that becoming a development agent can be a form of social mobility. It can be a way to improve one's status, not just materially. And in fact, you know, volunteers do not receive any, any financial reward for what they do, but it can help enhance their status and this is a you know a reason why a lot of people become volunteers in maidan now because of that that also means that what was previously on paper I guess a, an equal relationship suddenly becomes unequal and so this engenders a whole heap of emotions among different parties it could engender jealousy it shapes those encounters in particular ways because they were previously you know on the level par and suddenly there's a difference there The second way that class plays into effective configurations, if you like, is the way that people are more susceptible to being affected by some people compared to others. This does not necessarily mean that people who come from an upper class background, for example, are able to throw their weight around and they're able to affect people who are in the middle or lower class background. What it means is that it plays out in different ways depending on the particular context. And, and I think the only way to explain this is to go to the, the India research and talk about how women municipal councillors, how they're compelled to meet the demands of some citizens or some voters while ignoring the demands of others. So I'm thinking, for example, of this one municipal councillor, Rachna, who was from a lower middle class aspirational background. So she was somebody who lived in a very um, modest home. Uh, She was a Chhatria caste, so she was a relatively high caste, but she had low economic means. Now, the people who were most able to compel her to do work were those who were you know, who were solid middle class. And for some reason, Rachna was highly responsive to them. You know, she would go over to their house and she would make sure that they were satisfied. Whereas if there was somebody who was from a lower class or or somebody who was essentially poor, come to her house and she would leave them waiting on the the balcony and she would not respond to their needs or she would only do the bare minimum to look after them. And they had a lot of difficulty trying to get her to do things for them. Now, I'm not saying that, that it works so that Everybody who belongs to a higher economic class is able to compel people of a lower economic class to do things for them or or can affect them in particular ways. What's interesting is the closeness of it or or what, what that class differential, what emotions that engenders in the person. So another municipal councillor, for example, might come from a very well-to-do background and be really moved by people who have experienced poverty, for example. So in that way, there are patterns in how people respond to different classed bodies, but those patterns have to be read within particular contexts.
0: And that really circles back to the importance of emotion and affect as opposed to just structural position. We spoke a little bit at the beginning about the fact that the Indonesian story we've explored here is presented alongside the experience of these women counselors in India. And you've just given us some insight into that side of the story. But can you talk us through the benefits of taking this comparative approach?
1: I think the benefits come from being open to seeing the significance of things in the empirical material that you might not otherwise so I conducted the research in Indonesia first and I'd already thought about things such as effective injuries and how susceptible these volunteers were to being affected. But it was only when I started to do research in India with quite different types of development actors, municipal councillors, and I could see the same kind of patterns. I could see how their positioning within their localities, the kind of things that they had to do in respect to development, how it had similar effects. So what I think a comparative ethnography allows us to do is to identify something which seems you know, significant in one location, and it could even be dismissed as being a particularity to that context, and to see it in a different context and to say, well, this is something that speaks to broader operations of power in this instance, or or maybe it's something that responds to larger questions.
0: Finally, I'd like to circle back to the concept of vulnerability and its place within academic practice. Returning to your opening anecdote, can you please reflect on how this study challenged your academic practices around vulnerability and what this has meant for your subsequent research?
1: I think we're all in in a process of reflecting upon our relationships and our research practices. And I think vulnerability can be a good tool to think about how we can create conditions and how we can enter into those relationships in ways that we are more open to to reframing or rethinking what we're doing and maybe maybe i should start this by saying i have struggled as somebody who comes to india and who comes to indonesia with a lot of resources with a very clear idea about the kind of research that i want to do often my research has been fellowships so they're directed to me as an individual so bringing on partners has been particularly difficult because i already have a project in mind but what thinking about vulnerability has allowed me to do is think about how I can create conditions where I can take more on board of how my research associates and my research partners would like to frame the project. So to give an example, when I was working in Indonesia, you know, my research associates, the people that I was working with on a day-to-day basis, sometimes had a lot of difficulty telling me that I was wrong or um, giving a different interpretation of a research encounter. Now, this is really bad for the kind of research that I do because the research that I do is looking at emotions. And and I, as an Australian researcher, I cannot pretend that I will understand the emotional universes of people in Indonesia or, or within Medan specifically. So I need my research associates to speak openly with me and to be able to frame not only my interpretations, but also the direction of the research. So thinking about vulnerability I'm much more attentive to the hesitations and I do try to create those spaces where they feel more able to challenge me and to hurt me because sometimes I need to be hurt and the research is better for it.
0: That's a very interesting place to end.
1: Just before we wrap up, I'd really like to hear a bit about what you're working on currently. Well, the last bit of research I did for this book was the municipal elections in Dehradun in 2018. And I think I became addicted to research in politics and research on elections in particular. So my next research project is, again, a comparative ethnography based in Dehradun and in Medan, but looking at women's political labour. So trying to understand enduring questions of women's underrepresentation, not from the perspective of them being excluded or marginalised within politics, but looking at all of those different activities that they do that contribute to political success for somebody but not, often not themselves. So, for example, women are very active in creating a a home as a a political space, not just, you know, looking after the family while the male politician goes out, but ensuring that, you know, when guests come that they're entertained. This is all forms of labour. They're very active in building relationships in between electoral cycles that then can be harnessed for political success Uh, They run as candidates even when they have no chance of winning. These are all forms of political labour which they are undertaking but which they may not actually be getting the benefit of or even the recognition for. So the aim of this project is really to understand those forms of labour. Much of it is affective and emotional labour and trying to understand what are the mechanisms of appropriation of this labour, what are the mechanisms of exploitation of this labour.
0: Thanks, Tanya. That sounds really fascinating. And thanks too for joining me on New Books in Southeast Asian Studies to discuss susceptibility in development, micropolitics of local development in India and Indonesia. You've been listening to the New Books in Southeast Asian Studies podcast, a channel of the New Books Network. If you've enjoyed this episode, you might want to check out my conversation with Nicole Curato on her book, Democracy in a Time of Misery, which deals with some of the same themes, but from a very different perspective. That interview, which aired on the 1st of July 2021, is just one of hundreds of conversations about other Southeast Asia-related books on the channel. You can download or stream these interviews free of charge from the New Book Network's website or subscribe through your favourite podcast app.